Hey everyone, this is Jim Rohner, Deacon at Forefront Church. Really excited to share with you this interview with Drew Hart, who is a church anti-racism leader, a professor of theology at Messiah University, which is my alma mater as well, and most relevant to this conversation, the author of the book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. This was a really great and insightful conversation in which we talked about white supremacy within the church, how it stems from the proliferation of this image of the whitened Jesus, not just the white Jesus, a phrase that Drew used, which I really love, and how the experiences of black and brown and other people of color can really be um, exacerbated by not just living in America, but specifically in the church community and in the Christian education community. Um, this was a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it, uh, listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. So without further ado, here's a great conversation with Professor Drew Hart. First and foremost, I guess, I wanted to just highlight what I think is the just the importance of even language and the title of your book, Trouble I've Seen, uh, how it even, before someone starts reading it, signals to that idea of witness and experience. Um, and a lot of these themes that you get into in the book, um, horizontal divide versus individual experience. Now, it wasn't written that long ago. It was 2016. But this book, along with many other pieces of art and media, are suddenly now even more relevant than they may have been, at least to a, an outsider's perspective like me, it's more relevant. But for someone like you and, and for people who are black and brown, this has always been relevant and this has been relevant for an unfortunately long time. So can you first just talk a little bit about your inspiration and your journey to decide to write this book and kind of what led you into getting this out into the world? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me into this conversation. And yeah, I honestly, like I've been doing this work for so long, <laughs> um, way before the book. Um, so you could argue like I've been at least engaging around stuff around race in the church since like 2005, mm -hmm. um, really. Um, but get, engaging churches more explicitly in terms of like anti-racism talks and trainings and stuff, really, that would have probably started, I think it was like 2011, um, when I started doing that work. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the book, many of the things that come out of the book, um, are things that I had been working on over time already. The... Uh, impetus for writing the actual book itself came as I was a PhD student. Um, I was studying at Lutheran Theological Seminary, Philadelphia. <laughs> I had just finished up my comps, um, and not my comps, my coursework. And uh, Ferguson, you know, was <laughs> uh, up, you know, the uprising was taking place. Um, I was struggling with a sense of calling and vocation, like, what in the world am I doing? Mm -hmm. Locked up in the library. While like, you know, my brothers and sisters out there, you know, <laughs> taking it to the streets. Right? Yeah. Like what is going on? Mm -hmm. um, and I ran into um, a publisher, um, actually the executive director for Herald Press. And she um, was just interested in me writing something on race in the church while I was wrestling with that. So it really came with her coming and approaching me. And, and the initial thing I said to her was, um, this is a terrible time because I'm a PhD student. I'm right about to do my comps. I got to be like lock myself away. Mm -hmm. And then I have a dissertation to write. Like, you know, like <laughs> literally this is the worst possible time. And then I, and then immediately after that I said, but I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, 
And so what I did was I, after I finished coursework, I worked on study, did my comps, and then I worked on the book next. Oh, and I didn't work on my dissertation. Mm. I didn't tell my advisor. I didn't tell my committee. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody. I just like just went rogue and just did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in some ways, there's a spirit. Even the style of the writing is kind of a. Uh, me kind of challenging, right, the expectations of what a scholar is supposed to do, how they're supposed to write, right? Mm-hmm. Um, personal stories and stuff. That's not what scholars are supposed to do. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I was a misbehaving PhD student when I wrote it, um, but I had this sense of urgency and call to what was going on and seeing that churches were not responding well to the first wave of Black Lives Matter as it emerged in 2014. And so I wanted to speak into that. And I knew that I've been doing this work and I've seen at least some of the ways that I've been talking about it being helpful. And I, many churches have a really simplistic understanding of race and racism. Um, and it's and it leads to really simplistic solutions and responses, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to jump in and provide something that uh, had some explicitly anti-racist kind of discipleship kind of ways of thinking about it, right? Bringing not only the critical race theory and all that, uh, but the theological and ethical implications and what it means to be followers of Jesus and marry all that together in really faithful ways. And I thought that that would be something that I, I hoped would resonate with with the church. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to dig a little bit into your personal experience and the journey that you talk about in, in the book, because the the full title is Trouble I've Seen, Changing the yeah. Way the Church Views Racism. And you were very honest about how you were not separate from these ideas of, of these racial ideas and racial conflict and that sort of thing. But it was your experience at a private Christian college, the same one that I went to, in which the idea of people viewing you as an other was kind of brought into it, into really uh, sharp focus. So I'm I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about this dissonance that you might have been experiencing because yeah. you talk about that intellectual expansion which was so refreshing right. sure. and, yet, and yet while you're going through that and you're learning about this radical love there is also a contingency of people that are not embodying that yeah yeah there's no question um well, number one, I had no idea what I was getting in myself into in any way about Masai. Like I just had, I was clueless going in, which I think most students are sometimes about their institutions that they yep. signed their lives away for several years. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I went there, but I was optimistic. I mean, I was really looking forward because I had, I had three years of experience going to a white uh, middle class suburban school outside of Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my final three years um, uh, in in school, and so. I felt like, all right, I had made it through that. I mean, this is going to be easy, right? Of course I can. White Christians, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. I had a really pause the way that my church, the black church that I was raised in, for a real strong sense of Christian identity and Christian family was something significant, meant something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get there, um, and I, I mean, I, I think I say in the book that it was like one of the biggest miscalculations in my life is just that just was not the case right yeah. I was not everyone's brother and sister um, and 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 they allowed they let me know that right not always verbally saying that but uh, the social cues the body language everything all together let me know very quickly um, th- that belonging was running on a different line right mm-hmm. yeah um, and it wasn't the baptismal identity that that it was running alongside of and so 
And so I had to grapple with um, with what was going on in that space. And, and how I describe it in the book is just, I mean, some of the most overt racism and and even just the ongoing assaults of the what people call racial microaggression, just just swimming in that space um, and trying to figure out, like, why was it so overt in a Christian space? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what blew my mind. Yeah. Um, all right. Sure. Some white people are racist. Sure. Why is this so bad in a white Christian space? And this was something that my black church didn't prepare me for. Mm. They didn't articulate and have me expecting this kind of extra hostility. And so it was something I had to grapple with and, and make sense of. And so, um, so much of what I do today um, flows out of at least those initial experiences, the pain of it, but also then the seeking to try to understand what was going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of my graduate work later is me working out my stuff, trying to go back in history, <laughs> like what is going on? Like let me understand <laughs> this mess that is, uh, you know, really harmful to so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You really bring to mind in this book and a bunch of other books, this idea of that collision, because as you say, the, the black church didn't prepare you for that, whereas my upbringing in white suburban neighborhoods, white private schools, the whole thing, even up to my education in college, also didn't inform me, hey, not everyone believes this same thing, or this one thing we believe in um, has been used to oppress, has been used to push down. And um, I I, I keep coming back to the idea of even just the picture of a white Jesus, and right. there's been some controversy, I'm putting air quotes around that recently, because Sean King has proposed, or not proposed, but he was like, you know, images of, of white Christ, even in like church window or, or a stained glass window, should be destroyed. And yeah. I had a friend, an Episcopal priest friend, who yeah. was trying to start with espousing the idea of this is a sacred thing, let's not destroy it, but also this idea of everyone's depiction of Jesus is important to their culture. You know, Chinese people depict Jesus as one way and black people. So like all representations of Jesus are important. And there there was such a a disconnect there where it's like, but do you not understand how what I, yeah. And what I grew up with of white Jesus, I, the church I grew up in had that in the stained glass window and it was just kind of taken for granted. Like, yeah, of course that's what Jesus looks like. Right. Right. Yeah. There's no question. I mean, so the idea that all right, so all cultures represent Jesus their own way. Number one, that's not completely true, right? I mean, it's true. It's true, but it it misrepresents if you just say that and you don't say more. Yeah. Right. Because the fact of the matter is, is that there's no image of Jesus that has been pushed all around the globe more than the image of a white Jesus, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll see white Jesus in Africa, you'll see white Jesus in Asia, you'll see white Jesus in, in the Americas, right? All through South America and middle. And so, so number one, it's been pushed everywhere and it was pushed um, in the aftermath of colonialism and white supremacy and how that played out globally, right? Yeah. And the particular image that we have of white Jesus, uh, um, the the super white, you know, white Jesus with his hair flowing down, he's gazing <laughs> up to the sky, yeah. so genteel and so kind, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that white Jesus, um, that's an early 20th century product um, called the Head of Christ. And, and that um, is the most um, well-known image of Jesus anywhere in human history mm-hmm. and it emerges out of a white supremacist jim crow you know context like that's the context that that is merged out of and so there's a difference between like some of the older like more european images of jesus that like predate 
you know, colonialism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I think those images are different than um, imposing and standardizing and normalizing a whiteness Jesus in the context of white supremacy. Because then all of a sudden you're tying Jesus to literally the crucifiers rather than the crucified, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually not just a physical misrepresentation, it's a theological misrepresentation in terms of the power dynamics at play, right? That Jesus is associated with with the powerful rather than the powerless. And I think that those are some of the issues that people have to grapple with. So yes, I'm all for it. Um, taking down white Jesus is, but, but, but it's not just going to be the portraits. We've got to wrestle with the Jesus that we know that we follow. Yeah. And in what ways does that Jesus also uphold the status quo, mm-hmm. right? And not um, challenge and subvert it. There's a portion in your book that I, I just want to a quote because it, it leads into this or, or it's connected to this where you say, of course, we are all shaped by our culture and all see dimly. But at times, there seems to be no resemblance between our Jesus and the apostolic and spiritual witness we have. Jesus may be our answer, but our projections of Jesus may also be our problem. And I'm wondering if you agree with this thought, that you you don't use this specific language, but I was reading that and I was thinking, white culture, white supremacy has basically made an idol of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I call... The whiteness Jesus, which I like, to, I, I don't like to just say white Jesus. Sometimes I like to say whitens Jesus, just to remember <laughs> that something happened there. Mm-hmm. But um, but I sometimes I call him a, a, a mascot for white supremacy, right? Literally a mascot, right? That there's something yeah. that he's a mm-hmm. creation, um, or he's an idea, he's a figure that that hovers above anything historical or real or anything on the ground in terms of lived experience. And so, by creating him in such a way, I mean, some you could argue that. Um, by whitening Jesus, he also becomes like this figure, like the best of the West, right? <laughs> like, like somehow he's reimagined no longer as a Eastern, uh, you know, Afro-Asiatic kind of figure. Yep. And now all of a sudden he's the pinnacle of Western society and civilization, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of these things are maneuvers and tactics that, um, that confirm and allow, you know, justify oppression. Yeah. And also what is is so insidious about that is not just the the visual depiction of this is what rightness and purity looks like, but also how they've white supremacy has sort of also shifted the attitudes of Jesus. They they've whitened him, but they've also made him kind of this nice figure. And once yeah. again, kind of quoting you, uh, somehow American society has allowed this the idea to prevail that it takes mean people to perpetuate white supremacy. And the two thoughts I had based on that is like, one, uh, David Duke was seen as charming, intellectual, and clean cut. You know, he was seen right. as a non-threatening person. But then also this idea of like Jesus being painted as this nice figure then kind of makes it when someone like you speaks out or there's protests like, well, this isn't what Jesus wanted. And it's just like, I... I don't want a nice savior. I don't want someone that's just going to be like, no, everything's fine. That's not what I want. That's not what the Bible promises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, he was so nice. He didn't want to bother the slaveholders. <laughs> He's too kind to, to to tell them, you know, that, that what they're doing is oppressive. It's just too nice for that, right? And that's the kind of civility that we want people to practice, to be civil in front of the oppression and injustice and harm that's being done. Um don't don't be too bothered by the you know suffering of others because you know we've got to be polite um, and friendly to one another. Yeah, and then and then by by prevailing having that as a prevailing thought in society, it's a hop, skip, and a jump away to those kind of people upholding this picture. I mean, listen, in the past few months, I've seen so many people that I disagree with politically sharing 
what I can only consider memes of Martin Luther King and being like, right. this isn't what he wanted. And like, and kind Peaceful. of. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Martin Luther King was saying please and thank you to everyone. And Malcolm X was, of course, the bad guy in the equation. And just like, and, and how they don't realize it's like, well, you start from here. You extrapolate out like it's going to get to a point where you sort of be like, listen, Jesus was nice. Martin Luther King was nice. We, we need to confront this with niceness, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no that's why I can't stand when people say talk about, oh, Dr. King, he led peaceful marches. I'm like, what, what are we watching? Like looking at the same documentaries? Like that's not what I'm reading when I'm reading these books. Uh, what we see is that he was extremely disruptive. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that he he he. he um, when he came to town, I mean, they called him outside agitators. They mm -hmm. did not like when Dr. King showed up. Birmingham, they shut down the whole d uh, center city. Like, they shut it down, right? Yep. Um, so when protesters now are marching, you know, like, what do we want? Um, justice. When do we want it now? If we don't get it, shut it down, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, that's the motto that, I mean, literally, that's intentionally what Dr. King did. In Birmingham, the the whole effort there was called Project C, which and the C stood for confrontation. Like that was actually <laughs> the goal from the very beginning was we're gonna spark a confrontation with this city and shut it down and, and, and force them into conversations that we can negotiate more just terms. And so I think that the the whitewashing of, of Dr. King and trying to somehow smother him into like this American exceptionalist you know, white dream, mm. um, it's it's really dangerous um, and harmful for actual justice work because it now makes him, again, another mascot for the empire rather than for those that are resisting. You dig into this idea too in the book about the, the idea of imperialism and the dominant culture, specifically kind of in, in the, in, the context of mission work, it I, I laughed and was horrified about the the Harrisburg Invasion Day anecdote oh, yeah, that you're telling. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, once again, in my white evangelical suburb growing up, one of the greatest missions you could be called to was mission work, was going to other countries and telling them about you know the 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 gospel of Christ and that kind of thing. And it seems like it has perpetuated this idea of a dominant culture comes in, creates a problem. And then it's kind of saying like, well, here's how you treat this problem and almost sort of forcing the, the, the culture to kind of rely on its abusers for the answers almost in a way. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, I mean, the, the, the savior complex is, mm. it's, it's dangerous. Um, I mean, the, the tough thing with like, so the example that you gave with the, um, Harrisburg invasion story, and I, I tried to describe with try to at least be somewhat nuanced and how I talk about it ongoing is that, you know, these, like, if you think about it, like they were coming to the neighborhood, they were trying to serve, they had good intentions, right? <laughs> um, I joke that, you know, that they weren't coming in trying to like enslave my ancestors. <laughs> they weren't coming in trying to set a Jim Crow system, right? They were literally handing out grocery bags <laughs> randomly, but just handing out grocery <laughs> bags to people. So they had good intentions. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, like, the racial hierarchy was still in place, right? And, and that's some of the danger with the kind of savior complex. It's interesting that um, what I've seen so often with mainstream, white mainstream Christianity is that um, the word servant loses its meaning. Like, like how Jesus talks about what it means to be a servant actually is like entering into the bottom of the hierarchy, right? It's like breaking and subverting the hierarchy itself. Mm -hmm. When I hear white people and white Christians in particular talk about service and servanthood and things like that, 
it's like it's a hierarchical position where they have everything to give and nothing to receive from anybody else, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's no mutuality possible when I hear white Christians coming in saying that they're going to serve, right? Yeah. I know what the, I can expect already what that uh, relationship is going to look like, what kind of power dynamics are going to be in play. Um, and so it's, it, it creates a yeah, dangerous relationship between people groups have already been oppressed by them, colonized by them, conquest, whatever, and now they're coming back and they're going to do charity and service, and, and we're supposed to be thankful for that. And too often, that's the message that we get left with, and they want people to internalize, right, that they're the, the ones serving, rather than, like, how about we skip the service and jump straight to justice, right, which um, these communities have a historic role in creating the injustice. <laughs> Instead of seeing yourself as the savior for giving your little bits so you feel good and then go back home, mm -hmm. how about we restore um, and, and try to bring flourishing for all people? Yeah. It, there's a uh, an anecdote early in the book, the, the McDonald's cup thing, which is basically you, you mentioned you're sitting down with a, um, a white pastor and you're talking about kind of experiences. And the to, to oversimplify it for the listener, if you haven't read the book, um, this pastor tries to kind of equate racial experience in the church with sides of the cup where he's like you don't know what's on the other side of my cup until i show it to you kind of making that that equivalency of like all of our ind individual stories and experiences are important have you seen that when it comes to even even white um pastors even people that have like the best of intentions is that spirit of just kind of the 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 fundamental misunderstanding there, even if they have like, you know, they want to be woke or they want to be as helpful as they possibly can be. Yeah. I mean, I think that oftentimes because that I think many white people are taught at very early ages that the problem is separation, right? We've been separated from one another and we need to fix that and proximity will fix that. So we sit down, have a cup of coffee together, have a drink together mm -hmm. and somehow you know, the, the the actual problems of racism will just, you know, melt away because we've been in proximity together. And the one thing I often remind people is if that was the answer, then like, how do we understand, like, you know, if it was like 1850 and you're in like that slaveholder's house and you got black women cooking and cleaning and taking care of the children, right? There's mm -hmm. all kinds of proximity, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, in fact, you'll even hear, oh, so-and-so, they were like a family to us, right? Mm. But they're slaves. They're enslaved literally in the house, right? So proximity didn't change the hierarchies and the power dynamics and the oppression and domination that's taking place. And so proximity itself um, begins to actually, if we're only looking for relationship, um, you begin to lose sight of power and hierarchy. And I think we have to keep track of that, as well as then the systems and structures that we that uh, sustain that, right? And so I think um, my experience has been that a lot of times white Christians, you know, they come to these situations and they're looking for like a black friend, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my life, I've been lacking black people all of a sudden, they're awakened. So now I need to find some black people to become friends with. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right, Look, I'm not going to be your guy, but <laughs> if but if you do want a relationship, this is what I tell them, I say, but if you do want a relationship, most black people, like, they want justice. So if you want to get involved in some justice work, you can get your black friends and they can get the justice for their children so that their kids can have 
proper funding for public education and, and you know, housing and access mm -hmm. to healthcare and jobs and such, right? So like everybody, it's a win-win then. You can get your black friends, but do it in the context of struggling for justice so that other people can thrive and flourish in our world today. And so, yeah, I think that there's, an, there's a temptation to only look at the individual um, and lose sight of institutions and systems that actually um, create advantage and disadvantage and really um, leave black and brown people suffering. Well, and in, in there, there's a, a chapter in your book, I believe it, maybe it's chapter seven, correct me if I'm wrong, but where you talk about um, how even this idea of white supremacy and in the church, it's it's not just affecting black and brown people. Here's how it's affect other demographics or other ethnicities as well and other cultures. And one of the, I've already said the word insidious, I'm going to use it again because it's a $10 word and I think it's also helpful, is one of the most insidious implications of a lot of that stuff is it's not just that white supremacy comes along and oppresses one culture, but it's so dominant and it's so widespread, it can actually pit other cultures against each other as well in the sense of hostilities within other races and directed toward each other all kind of stem back from this idea of a culture coming in and being like, you are below. But yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, white supremacy definitely, um, it hits everybody, right? It shapes everybody's life. No one's outside of this. Um, I think one of the examples I give in the book, which maybe is not as obvious initially, is in terms of the uh, black community and the Asian American community, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. the different ways that they uh, interact and experience white supremacy and the ways that um, are the framing of it has pit those groups against each other often. And so, um, you know, black people are loud, Asian Americans are quiet, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, it, lazy, hard work, all, all these different ways of framing it, right? Submissive, out of control, all just framing um, stereotypes in ways that are opposite of one another. And, and what it does then, even in doing that, these extremes then frames white people as normal right mm -hmm. um these people are, are um so even even though um some people might see some of the asian american stereotypes as positive or even a few of the black ones right the athletic or things like that sure, they might yeah. see them certain ones as as positive but they're still um essentializing a people based on a category rather than the particularity of each person's personality, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so it, it becomes dangerous. And so, uh, Asian Americans have talked about um, that framing in terms of they call it the model minority, right? Yeah. Um, this idea that they're kind of like put up as the standard by which other black people, other people of color should be, look, why are you complaining? Anybody can make it because look, these Asian Americans are making it, right? Which is complicated because um, on one hand. Asian Americans actually overall as, as a category um, are doing much better economically than other um, certain people groups, and in some cases better than white people in certain categories, right? Mm -hmm. um, but of course, if you actually get a little more closer and don't just use a racialized way of looking at Asian American, look at different people groups, um, that's not actually all. There's many groups that are struggling in poverty, right? Um, a lot of it has to do with their experience coming what, in what context did they come here? What opportunities do they have? What cities? And so some groups that are coming as refugees, right, are not having the same experience as people who are like immigrating here as engineers and doctors. But you put this paradigm of white supremacy that just categorizes a group in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And then their lived experience certainly is way different than black people who've gone through slavery and Jim Crow and such up to the present. 
and then but using and putting them against each other. And I think what's kind of neat, at least certainly right now in our COVID slash second wave of Black Lives Matter moment mm -hmm. is the ways I've seen the black community and Asian American community actually collaborating together and finding um, more solidarity than I've seen at any other point in my history, um, realizing that we're all experiencing white supremacy, not always in the exact same ways, but we're all experiencing it and should have something shared in investing, in, invested in trying to bring it down and end it. And I, I do want to talk about that, this, this kind of second wave, because I, um, we've been seeing a lot of stuff like um, re-engagement in a lot of art and a lot of media. I mean, um, I remember trying to search for, like, uh, specifically from, like, um, black-owned businesses, books like White Fragility, How to Be Anti-Racist, The New Jim Crow, sold out all over the place. Right. So on the one hand, it's great that there's a re-engagement, but could you also um, kind of give your thoughts on how these conversations seem to be coming about? Because on the one hand, it's like, yay, we're having these conversations, but also it's sort of like, at first I thought, well, it only they only came about because the world started shaking. But then when I think more about that, it was like, well, from my perspective it was, but for black and brown people, this has, it's been this way for so long. So can you talk a little bit about that idea of um, how you might feel about there's the engagement now, but how long it's kind of taken to get to that point? Yeah, I mean, it, it well, number one, we're, we're always happy <laughs> <laughs> that somebody's awakening, right? Um, that's better than, than never. Yeah. Um, but it's also like, it's, I mean, there, no one gets cookies for showing up late to, to the party, right? Like, <laughs> like, like we've been literally centuries in now. I don't know. I, I should just speak for myself that, you know, I'm watching and waiting to see how this really plays out. Um, uh, one thing is for sure, there's no question, like there's been a, a larger response from a larger percentage of white Americans than we've ever seen in our history in terms of um, con condemning racism in some form, right? Mm -hmm. um, and certainly I don't think there's ever been a point in which so many anti-racist texts have been like, New York Times bestsellers. I mean, my book has gone out of stock for a few times. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, everyone's reading. It's the thing right now, right? It's trendy, right? Literally, mm -hmm. for people to, they're watching the movies, watching Just Mercy, everybody's doing something, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced that everyone's in it for the long haul, yeah. right? I'm not convinced that people are going to be sustained in this work. Um, and so, you know, I'm waiting to see, you know, when when the trend falls, when the whirlwind <laughs> dies down, um, who's left standing, um, who's going to be committed to doing the ongoing work, because that's where the real change is going to happen, the ongoing sustained work. I remember, um, and this is actually my new book coming out, I talk about when uh, they had um, announced that families were being separated by the Trump administration, mm -hmm. right? And there was this big uproar that happened, huge uproar. And I remember I was actually invited to speak in my city here in Harrisburg. And it was like thousands of people. It was like wrapped around the governor's mansion and stuff. It was just crazy, right? So many people were there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, following year, the following summer, um, the same groups held another rally. And I was there and it was like 40 people showed up, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, where did everybody go? Mm -hmm. Like I thought this was, you know, the, this is the last stand, no further Trump, right? Um, <laughs> yep. And also people, and so, you know, I, I, I'm, movements come and movements go. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it was ingenuous, like that people don't mean anything by it. Um, 
but but the sustained work is the the real on the ground work that we need to see. And so I'm hoping that that people will take this opportunity to do some self-examination around their own commitments and what what they're really committed to doing on the ongoing so that they can go deeper, that they can read more than just one book, right? It's easy, like right now it's like everyone's got their favorite, you know, you read Kendi or you read D'Angelo or whoever, which is fine, but then uh, but then like realize there's been people who've been doing this work for a long time. Um, and so like there's a whole chorus of conversations that have been taking place. If someone only reads Kendi, for example, you only get a tiny glimpse into this conversation. So I'm hoping that even with my book that I wouldn't want anybody to just stop there, right? To keep going mm-hmm. and to dig deeper and to, and to join the conversation themselves. Yeah, and a lot of that I think does come down to um, when it comes to engagement, sort of what is being shown or told to us. I mean, uh, a lot of there, there was a, certainly a lot of media coverage after what happened to George Floyd, and then it picked back up again after uh, Rayshard Brooks was was murdered by police. And so there was just a week where I know my wife and I were just every night we were watching the news until late at night, just seeing what's developing, what's happening. The news was showing the protests and um, the demonstrations and the anger and, and kind of the, the the voice that was rising up. And then a couple weeks later, now let's get back to the pandemic stuff. Let's get back to the Trump administration. And now it's like, I see it on Twitter. People are still marching. People are right. still coming out in droves here in New York City. The right. media doesn't care, though. But And it's sort of there is that idea that, especially for white people, if it's not directly in front of us, we're not necessarily going to be paying attention to it. Yeah, the new 24-7 news cycle is powerful in the imagination of mainstream America. And and if we allow that to drive our concerns rather than being rooted in our communities and locally and figure out what's going on with our neighbors Mm -hmm. on the ground, right? Like if we can't keep in touch what's happening on the ground, then yeah, I mean, we're like, a what's it, the squirrel, right? You look <laughs> you know, in different directions. Um, and so I think that we've got to do better than that. And we can't be so distracted. Um, and we got to know what we're for. That's why I'm a big advocate for like on the ground, like activism, organizing work on the ground, um, where you know what are the issues that are impacting your community or your neighbors or whoever you're standing in solidarity with. And you stay focused and you keep stay committed to that work. And now you are um, a professor at Messiah College, so you yeah. have you've gone full circle. You've returned to the place where you started started your learning journey. Um, what has it been like for you to return there to this place where once again you were first kind of made aware of the sharpness of how people look at you, and you have now returned there to kind of teach? What has that been like? What sort of results or change or progress have you seen in your work there? Yeah, it's been interesting. Um, number one, I, I I will say this: I love my department and my colleague. Like my <laughs> colleagues, they're amazing. Um, I love working with my department in particular. I think we have the best department, maybe you know, <laughs> without any bias. I actually, I actually don't think that's that biased of a, an opinion. Um, but of course, anybody would think that's what I'm supposed to say. But I actually truly mean that. Um, I would highly suggest it to folks if they wanted to study biblical and religious studies um, anywhere in this country. Um, that said, you know, it's complicated. I mean, Messiah is a really complicated space. Mm-hmm. Um, conservative evangelicalism is strong. There's a strong portion of students that come and that that shapes the kind of the environment um, in many ways. And so Messiah, I mean, it's, I feel like we have um, 
two personalities all the time, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, one that we want to appear this kind of generic Christian school for the broader society so that we can keep the butter rolling in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the history and some of the people within the institution that I think really um, push for much more and understands um, the Christian vision to be much more than that, the ethical implications of it to be much more significant than that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it, for me personally, teaching has been phenomenal. I've loved teaching in the classroom. I've actually been amazed at um, how open our students have been willing to kind of journey with me. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I got them reading like Cones, God of the Oppressed, Kelly Brown Douglas, everything, right? Um, <laughs> and they've just really um, journeyed with me. It's been a lot of fun. I probably was more nervous going in in terms of what that would have looked like, but I've actually had a really great experience with students and the opportunity knowing that I don't have to, um, like I do a lot of like talks mm-hmm. on the road publicly where like, I got to like drop everything all at once. Mm-hmm. Here, like I can kind of like, you know, unroll them into something, you know, kind of <laughs> ease them in, like yep. the plane taking off, um, off the runway. And so, yeah, it's been good overall, but there's, you know, Masai, we, like I've come to the to the conclusion, you know, it's an institution that is worried about its business, its life, its survival on the financial end. Sure. And that shapes a lot of decisions. And so, um, you know, it needs people that have um, some ethical convictions and integrity mm-hmm. inside to kind of keep things focused. I try to play my part in that. I, and I, I say all that to say I don't envy um the leadership that have to make very difficult decisions in terms of its own financial survival. So I, I sometimes I, as, as a faculty, I see why they make some of the decisions that they did that I think I might've been more frustrated with that, um, as a student, but, but I also like, I'm a deep, like, you know, as I talked about, like with the being misbehaving PhDs, I'm very conviction and integrity led. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so in fact, my, my mom's son um, that just can't help but speak the truth um, wherever I am. And so feeling the tensions at time also that, and I think that it's healthy, right, to feel the tensions and to, to uh, I often say I have a love-hate relationship with Messiah, and mm-hmm. and I mean that in both ends in very true ways. Um, I both recommend it at times to folks and, and also warn some people away from it, uh, depending <laughs> on who they are. Um, um, I, I brag about it. I, I'm embarrassed by it sometimes, right? All these things mm-hmm. are realities that I have to grapple with. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my experience as a faculty member, but I've overall, I'm, I'm grateful to be back because there's a certain sense of homeness, mm-hmm. uh, which also allows me to get away with some stuff, I think, um, <laughs> as a, as an alum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like you have a relationship with it and that, and all the, the good and the bad that comes with it. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, both of us graduated from there. Um, I loved my time there, but I also, in, in describing it to other people, it's sort of like this unicorn of an entity where it's sort of like, yeah, you know, it was founded on Anabaptist principles. Um, dancing was outlawed there until like, I think the 90s. Um, but at the same time, uh, they're, the only place you'll find an American flag on campus is the athletic fields, and that's just to adhere to NCAA um, guidelines, basically. So there is this idea of like your spirituality and your theology is very important, but also we're going to intellectually challenge you, but also, but also, and it, it, it all kind of blends together. And it is so, 
it is so wonderful. I mean, I, I was a film student when I was there, so my okay. my my journey into the the liberal world of filmmaking kind of started there, which is so fascinating in retrospect. Because yeah. like, really, that's the place. Like, right. that's the right. place that right. taught me. Um, right. Yeah, and so I, I I almost kind of wanted to ask when the the opportunity was presented to you, was there more of a hesitation of like, am I going to have to adhere to something, or the excitement of, but I can also do this. But I guess. Those two things yeah. don't have to be apart. Those can be together. Yeah. So uh, to be clear, like I had um, three job offers. I, I was spoiled. Um, I won't lie because <laughs> theology positions are far and few between um, sometimes. And so I had options. So I didn't get stuck at Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, two, one was in Virginia. The other one was in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, one, one other one was a Christian college and the other one was not. And ironically, it was the one that wasn't a Christian college that actually most scared me in terms of the racial atmosphere there and what and the kind of institutional policy. It was worse than both the Christian colleges, which was actually interesting um, <laughs> in Birmingham. And so, so I had relationships and connections. Some of me, I mean, I, I have a family. I, I'm married and I have three boys. I was also thinking about community mm-hmm. and not just in terms of at Messiah, but also in terms of like living in Harrisburg already having connections in the city yeah. and so not starting from scratch. But, um, but there is something about being an alum, um, that I think also was compelling. Right. And there's something about, uh, the beauty of having that sense of connection and relationship with institution, but also people within the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's also like complicated because I realize that there's times in which probably I get, maybe more invested in like institutional life stuff precisely because I'm an alum and I just can't let it go. Like mm-hmm. I feel responsible. Right. You know right. what I mean? Like this is me. Right. <laughs> um, and so like, you know, so I, I want to show up and I want to push on this and that and have conversation about this. Um, and so, so being an alum also complicates it. Cause I feel like if I was at another institution, maybe I just, I'd, I'd probably be even more productive, right? Because I'd be like, hey, that's not my problem. Mm-hmm. It's somebody else's problem, right? <laughs> let me just do, let me worry about what's in the classroom and then do my scholarship and not worry about the institution because institutions are what they are, right? Yeah. But I feel like there's something, it has me, which I don't know. I, I guess ask me in 10 years if that's a good thing or not, <laughs> if I've wasted my time or if it has been productive, I guess we'll see. Mm-hmm. One thing that just occurred to me in this Side note to you, maybe something that I'll cut out. I'm curious as to how you how you may have seen things shift in the sense of when you were studying there, we were pre-Trump, basically, which isn't to say that um, yeah. white supremacy wasn't a thing, which isn't to say that racial disparities weren't a thing. Um, and now you have returned after the fact when it seems yeah. like partisanship is too an extreme. How... How have you seen that kind of manifest amongst a a young student body, which is kind of getting prepared to head out into the world? Or as an institution, are they kind of doing a decent job of kind of keeping reins on that or just kind of trying to keep people open? Yeah. So my I mean, it was literally my first year that Trump was elected. And so it erupted. And what I heard from students of color was that. Um, while they were watching the election, it was younger students in particular, young white students in particular that were ranting, like, mm-hmm. you know, lock her up and different things like that, literally as things are going on. And however, that it was 
older students, juniors and seniors um, that were there that shut them down and said, no, 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 that's not appropriate. <laughs> so it's, it's just interesting. Yeah. And for me, I think that says something about what happens for a lot of students while they're there mm-hmm. um, and why I think Masai actually does play an important role, right? Which is, um, I I don't think it changes like who, we, who comes to Messiah. I think the majority come very tightened, conservative evangelicals shaped and socialized by the communities that they've been a part of. Um, but I, I feel like those, some students certainly leave that way too. Yeah, um, of course. Um, but, but I feel for a lot of students, that's not how they leave. I just, it's amazing. I think to see the journey that so many students go on, um, and that they're exposed to so many different more perspectives, denominations, theological perspectives, they're going to take biblical studies that are going to push them in terms of thinking critically about the text mm-hmm. They're going to take theology courses they are going to challenge them to think differently about how they understand their faith. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that there's no question that for a large segment of, of students, we're able to grapple with them. And I think that, in my opinion, there are faculty members who were around while we were there, but are now... Um, I think a little more perceptive actually about some of the dangers. I think they were probably a little more naive about because it's a little <laughs> more in their face. They've got to address it a little bit more uh, straightforward. And so I'm not saying, I'm sure there are some, um, I mean, I don't know for fact, but I just imagine that there's got to be some faculty that support Trump, you know. Um, I'm sure there's some, but I don't think they're, 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 uh, a quiet minority, certainly, on mm-hmm. campus. Um, and so I think that at least faculty are very aware of the dangers of the rhetoric that's in our society today. Certainly, there's some of us that are much more radical around some of this stuff than others are. But but I think overall, um, most faculty are aware of the dangers of what's happening um, in our country and the ways that Christianity and religious nationalism are so bound up in one another mm-hmm. too often in our country. Yeah. There's a um, a scholar, uh, Willie James Jennings, a very well-known, famous black scholar, um, and he was at Messiah um, a few years ago, and we had him for like a dinner with our faculty, um, the our department faculty, and he was talking about Messiah students coming to the seminary where he taught, <laughs> and it was actually it was actually really beautiful what he said. He said, you know, some students are too wound up and some are not at all. But Maasai students tend, to, overall, what he, his perception was that they come just right. I think that's the like, way <laughs> you know, teasing a little bit. But just, you know, like, I do think something happens because um, they've got to, um, they're grappling with a lot. I think for a majority of students, they're grappling and wrestling. Again, it's different, like different students are going to respond in different ways while they're there. So it's not like everyone is just like, you know, oh, yeah, whatever. Nothing's being imposed and coerced right. on the minds at Messiah College. Um, but 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 there's these opportunities for growth and opportunity to wrestle and dialogue deeper, to think critically about their faith in ways that they hadn't before. And um, and I do think, yeah, something meaningful happens for a lot of students. And certainly I've seen that in the classroom. Um the, the students that come into my classroom, I, I feel like I'm able to journey with them in really significant ways. Um, and I've been really proud of, honestly, the students that I've had in the classroom. Yeah. Well, and it's tremendously unfortunate that our culture has gotten to a point where this idea of sharing experiences or other viewpoints is now being cast as indoctrinating. You are indoctrinating our students, um, right. Professor Drew, which is right. uh, horrible. But 
Um, stepping back a little bit from a, a small private college in central Pennsylvania that uh, in a town no one has probably ever heard of before, um, I, I want to get back to an idea of, of hope or progress. I mean, you, you talk about the idea that you're a little bit skeptical of um, white people kind of keeping up this momentum on their own, but is there stuff that you're seeing that is inspiring hope in you that is kind of saying like, you know, there, there's that, um, there's that quote that, that was popularized by Martin Luther King, this idea of, uh, the, uh, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it's bent towards justice. Yeah. Are you seeing that in your work? Are you seeing that in the world? Are you seeing that in your experience? Let me push back on what I said. Like, I do think I'm not like, there's something really powerful and beautiful about what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that, in some ways, can offer some kinds of hope, right? But not hope in the like the optimistic hope that like, yeah, everyone's there now. We're we're ready to take on you know white <laughs> yeah. supremacy now. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not there, but I think you know when we think about hope as a, like a discipline or a practice, like something you embody, um, like people are showing up, and when we show up, like that's that's hopeful, right? Um, and so there's something hopeful in the moment, but but. Like, so I'll, I'll use the example of um, Vincent Harding. He has his book, There is a River. And it's a history of black people struggling against slavery from like the moment they're grabbed on the shores of Africa to like, you know, emancipation. Like that's pretty much a, a whole variety of different ways that he describes the different resistance that black people engaged in at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but he uses the river analogy um, in a really beautiful way to talk about like, you know, sometimes there's this river that is like flowing and rushing like a waterfall and other times it's just like a little trickle, but that there's always been this river flowing. Right. And in some ways it's like, he's describing the human spirit to resist, to seek freedom, to struggle for justice, all these things um, that has always existed and that we can be a part of. Right. And I think like that is where my hope it's both past present and what I, I know will continue to be in the future, which is those struggling. Right. Um, and that I do believe as a Christian that they're tapping into what God is doing in the world. Like, that's what I believe, right? That they're participating in the spirits movement that is also seeking justice and righteousness and shalom and flourishing and peace, um, ultimately that will be, uh, culminated at some point. And so how do we join in and struggle for that? Um, remembering those who've come before us, seeing those who are embodying it right to our side, to our right and to our left, um, and believing that we're going to pass that on and others are going to pick up the baton, right? Um, so yeah, I, I do think, you know, I believe probably more as a, a doctrine, what Dr. King said, right? Um, you know, that just, you know, the, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, but I think it, it finds its most meaningful place in my own self when um, I actually see people embodying that and living that out, um, actually showing up, right? And so I think for Christians, we have to be the hope. We have mm -hmm. to um, model it and embody it and, and flesh it for others to see and make it visible. Mm -hmm. uh, just one final thing I wanted to say, and it's it's just something that you say in your book. There's not necessarily a question there. Um, and if I just kept saying to you, I loved when you wrote this. I loved when you wrote this. We'd be here for a while. They're, my notes are so long. But just one final thing I wanted to end on, which I think was, um, I love how you describe the gospel as comprehensive, subversive, dangerous, and even undermining. And this idea of yeah. this is a 
getting back to the word, this is a radical thing that you hold in your hand. This is a radical thing to believe in. And yeah, I, I, I just, I love the idea that if we, if Christians, if young people, if older people, no matter where you are uh, on the spectrum or in the world, kind of keep holding on to this idea as like, this is going to be life-changing. This is not going to teach you how to be nice. This is not going to teach you how to be peaceful. This is going to teach you to be radical. I think that's a really inspirational thing for the future. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of wild, and this goes back to our first conversation around white and Jesus and stuff. It's it's wild how domesticated and diluted Jesus has. Been. I mean, first century Palestinian Jew living under Roman occupation, <laughs> and he's preaching an uh, an alternative, a counter kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and all these words that are used to describe Jesus or the language he uses, they're political terms. Gospel, euangelion, that's a political term from the first century. Kingdom, <laughs> political, Lord, political, right? Um, savior, right? That's supposed to be applied to Caesar, right? He's supposed to be the savior of the world. He's the one supposed to bring peace to everyone. He's That's the claims that he had made. And these disciples have the, the brilliance to take these words and to use it to help us to describe what Jesus is doing, the subversive reign of God under the nose of Caesar. Um, and when we can grasp that, when we can begin to like immerse ourselves in the significance of what is actually happening there, how the story is being told, um, it's da- these are dangerous stories. <laughs> these are stories that empires don't want to have running around loose. Um, they're only loose. Uh, it's only no longer dangerous when they've been neutered and and domesticated and, you know, and they lose their um, sociopolitical significance, which is precisely what, you know, uh, Western Christendom did, right? They spiritualized everything, all the language. Oh, that doesn't really mean the poor, mm-hmm. right? Um, that doesn't really mean, when he says set the oppressed free, he doesn't really care about the oppressed. These are just spiritual things that he cares about. Yeah, he gave, um, you know, food to the hungry, but I mean... But now we just need to feed people spiritually, and that's the real stuff. People, you know, poverty, you know, there's always going to be poverty with us. Isn't that what Jesus said? Yeah. And so we do all these maneuvers to water down and domesticate um, Jesus. And we found a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fancy tricks that Christendom has created over the years to um, justify status quo religion. Um, but but I do think um, once, I mean, you immerse yourself in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't know how you... It will radicalize you if you take it seriously, right? If you're like, this is the guy I believe in, and 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 his way is going to be my way of life. Um, you talk about the jubilee ethics of Jesus, the economic implications of it. It's dangerous, right? <laughs> These are dangerous ideas um, that that we should probably be whispering and warning, like, is the CIA listening on us, right? <laughs> if, if they realize how subversive um, Jesus' ideas are, because it is the end of the world as we know it. Um, and it's a, imagining God's dream for our society, a whole different way of being uh, and pursuing that. So literally <laughs> um, getting folks together and pursuing that and building that and, and struggling towards that, hungering and thirsting for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's um, something really powerful. And I think when we can keep sight of God's kingdom, this idea, this radical revolutionary kingdom in the midst of like a world so shaped and drenched in white supremacy, like that can give us the vision for what we want to strive towards um, as we live in the midst of what is reality right now. I mean, as you say, the manipulation to make Jesus look like 
think like, and act in congruence with the myth of the white male figure is not the Jesus found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is an imposter. We might go so far as to say that it is an antichrist. Let's, right. let's keep the gospel dangerous. Let's keep it subversive. Let's keep it radical. Uh, Drew, thanks so much for joining me in this conversation today. It, it, it was great, and the book is it was great as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. This has been great.